Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. Whether you work for government or industry, we're here to help you understand just a little more about how the other side thinks. This episode is brought to you by Skyway Acquisition. Skyway's team of former contracting officers and industry pros will help make you more prepared, more competitive, and more effective in the government market. Visit skywaymember.com to learn more. Today, we're going to add a new perspective to the podcast. Our friend Dave Bartlow stopped by to share a little of the program manager's perspective on government acquisition. Okay, let's get started with my conversation with Dave about the program manager's perspective. Okay, Dave, tell me how you got into the program management business. Well, my background primarily is in the Navy. So I enlisted in the Navy first. I was a torpedo man's mate, which is a job that's not even available anymore. And I was fortunate enough to get picked up to go to the Naval Academy and came out as an officer, uh, mostly doing surface warfare um, out of frigates in Mayport, Florida. And that was really the start for me in project management because the way that things are structured in the military is very similar to the way that things are structured as projects on the industry side. But at the time, I didn't really know it. I didn't even know there was a <laughs> career path called project management, right? And I think that's fairly common for, for military officers. And the project management community is actually now pushing into the, the military ranks to expose people to this potential career path called project management. So, when they're, before they're even in the acquisition world, before they know anything Before they even it, get right? out, right. And that's another thing, too, that I've noticed is that everybody assumes when you're in the military that you know what the government acquisition process is or what it looks like. And I'll admit I didn't. And I think most of my colleagues at the time didn't either. It wasn't until I got out of the Navy and started working for a large government consulting firm where I was really introduced to the whole government acquisition process. So when you're in the Navy, you you weren't a program manager yet, and you, you didn't even know program managing that was, you didn't know that was a thing for, <laughs> for the Navy? Didn't even know that it existed. <laughs> and uh, right, and certainly not for the Navy. I mean, down at that level, things are organized. When you're a surface warfare officer on a ship, things are organized like a project. You have a team that's working for you. You have a discrete set of tasks that you have to complete with that team. So it's very similar in that way, but the jargon is different. The terminology is different. The tools and techniques are different. And so once you bridge that, that relatively minor gap, it really sets you up nicely for a career on the outside as a project manager. Yeah, it, it seems like a, a lot of former military officers, well, and enlisted, end up in the acquisition business, sure. in, in the in the project business afterwards. Right. There's a couple of ways to, to sort of enter the, the project manager role. Uh, one of them would be through the military, and that's, again, my kind of background. One is to be an engineer, and you kind of work your way up the ranks. And then one day you show up at work, and they tell you you're a project manager. <laughs> right. right? Congratulations, you're a project manager. Somebody's um, got to do it. Right, right. So those are probably two of the more common ways to, to end up in that project manager role. There's certainly other paths to get there. Um, but for me, it was through the military. So when I was in the military, most people assume that that people in the government or particularly in the military, understand the government acquisition process. And I'll admit that I didn't. And in fact, I never really bought anything while I was in the, the military or as, an, as a Navy officer, except for one thing, and that was a door. So when I was on the ship, I was in charge of the Combat Information Center, which is if you ever watch like a Navy movie and on the ship, you'll have that one room that's kind of dimly lit and there's radar sweeps and people you know, launching missiles and stuff. So I was in charge of that space, and across the hall was the captain's cabin. So that's where he worked and lived. <laughs> and the ship was old. I think it was built in the 70s, and the door was just as old. And uh, it used to slam shut. 
So if you can imagine being responsible for your boss's lack of sleep every <laughs> night, that is the ultimate motivator to get something done. So I worked with the supply officer and we figured out how to how to get a new door to my space. And that would be my one victory, uh, my one acquisition. Buying a door. Buying one door for a Navy ship that's, uh, that's actually no longer with us was my one victory as a, uh, when I was on the government side. And I'll bet buying a door uh, when you're on, on the ship is a little harder than, than it might be to buy a door for your house here. Yeah. It w- I mean, there's all, I mean, it was the combat information center. So there were special requirements and everything. And, and honestly, I did a lot of the legwork in finding the vendor who actually created the first door, which was a little bit of a challenge, but for the most part, it was a handoff to our supply officer who did most of the actual, um, you know, acquisition process. Yeah. So I think, you know, for military officers, you're not really that familiar with the process unless you're a supply officer or somebody who happens to be specifically in that role. But you got a taste of project management, at least door, door management. Door, right. Door acquisition. <laughs> so then you left the Navy and you went to work for a, a government consulting firm. Right. And so my last tour was at the Pentagon. Uh, so that brought me up to the D.C. area. And again, it's very sort of traditional path. I left the Navy and joined a large uh, government consulting agency where I was really introduced to two things. One is the government acquisition process. And the other was this career path called project management. And as I looked at that, I realized that a lot of the the skills that I developed in the Navy were very transferable to this career path called project management. Because, I mean, when I got out of the Navy, and I don't think it's that uncommon for a lot of military officers getting out, you have no idea what you're going to do. <laughs> right. You don't know how it works out in the real world. Um, and so when I discovered that career path, it was an instant sort of connection for me where I realized that's the, that's the path hey, that I'm going to take. I didn't take. even know I was training for this. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and so it becomes tricky now when people ask me how many years of experience do I have as a project manager? I definitely count that time when I was in the military yeah. Yeah. and, uh, and I think appropriately so managing people and getting things done. So you cut your teeth at a government consulting firm learning acquisition process and learning that, Hey, there is a project management field out there. Right. After some time with them, you left and. So, uh, in that role as a consulting role, I really wanted to get into a role where I was actually the project manager. So instead of advising people on how to do project management, I really wanted to get into that role. So, um, I changed companies, went to another large, uh, government, um, contractor, but in this case they had an actual product that they sold to the government. Right. So I was a, I was the no kidding project manager in that case. (laughs) And the projects were mostly machinery control systems for Navy ships. So still kind of clinging on to that Navy background. Right, right. Use, use what you know. Right. Yeah, exactly. So leveraging that background, I worked for them for a while. It was a large government contractor. And then I've, uh, within the last few years, transitioned over to a smaller government contractor, still primarily Navy projects. But it was important for me to see the difference between how things work in a large government contractor versus in a small business. Right. So we're now a service-disabled, veteran-owned small business, and it's a little bit different world when you're running projects in that type of environment as opposed to for yeah, a big company. Yeah, the resources available are quite different. There's different challenges. What's your favorite kind of project to manage? This is the way that I like to describe it. If you want to get into project management, the best thing to do is learn how to manage projects that have gone off the rail, or I call them distressed projects. <laughs> distressed. Be- because those are the jobs that are available, right? If right. you've got a project where everything's going great and everything's on track, that project manager is not going anywhere. Oh, and that yeah. job is probably not available. <laughs> it's those projects that have gone off the rails. Those are the jobs that are going to be available. So, you know, when you say, what's your favorite project? It's obviously less stressful to manage a project 
that is within scope and time and um, fully staffed with the right people. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so those are, those are fun ones to do, but I do enjoy the challenge of distressed projects, projects that for one reason or another have kind of gone off the rails. Yeah. And I really like diving in to find out what is it that took them off the rails and then what are the actions we could do to get them back on track. Let's talk about lessons learned from a project management perspective. Kevin and I are always talking contracting officer kind of stuff. It's refreshing to have a project manager's point of view on these things. All right, Dave, tell me about a time you screwed up as a project manager. So if we talk about that, there's one particular moment that comes to my mind where I was standing in my boss's office, who was one of my early mentors, a really great guy, but we were standing in his office looking over a schedule that I put together and he was asking me, what the heck was I doing and putting this schedule together? So just to kind of backtrack real quick, when you go to project management school, you learn different ways that you could characterize the relationship between tasks. So the simplest would be um, finish to start. You have to finish task A before you start task B. So I need to finish building my house before I start painting it. But there's other ways that you could characterize that relationship. It's start to start and finish to finish and start to finish. It gets really complicated. And for me, I wanted to show off some of those skills on one of my early projects. <laughs> and I used every single one of those in my project schedule, which, although technically correct in any particular case, made it very difficult to communicate what was happening within the schedule for the project. Right. And the way that it eventually played out was the government was our customer. They were, they were late in reviewing some documents that we had given to them. And it was a firm fixed price contract. So everybody was really interested in the impact of that delay. Right. On my side of the house, my leadership wanted to know because it's firm fixed price and there might be some considerations that we could get for the government for them being late in reviewing these documents. But actually on the government side, they wanted to know what the impact was as well because they were trying to justify to their own leadership that they needed more people on their project to do things like document reviews. Right. So – I had everybody mad at me, which is a great opportunity. <laughs> that's to, a regular part of the project manager's that's, job. That's right. Get everybody so, mad at you. So that's standard. <laughs> but um, when everybody's mad at you like that, it's a great opportunity to kind of learn. Yeah. And that's how I ended up in my boss's office overlooking the schedule. And, and he was asking me, what, what, are you, what on earth are you doing with this? Thing? <laughs> so he sent me back and we redid the schedule where we used only those finish to start. It's a more basic type of characterization of the relationship. But it makes it much easier to manage things like schedule delays because then you could just plug in that schedule delay and it becomes clear to everybody exactly what's going on with the schedule and exactly what the impacts are. So, for example, finish to finish, let's say. The best example to give outside of that particular project would be like if you're cooking something and you need to know when to put the potatoes in and you need to know when to start the the steak right? because they both have different durations that it's going to take to, but you want them all to finish at the exact same time. Yep. Right. So that's where you would use a finish to finish sort of relationship. The workaround that I would advocate and that I use on my projects now is just figure out whatever that difference is in time between when you need to start one or the other and then just both get them to start at that same time. And so that way you get that that same finish. If you do start to start where if one of them's delay, it looks like there's no impact to the schedule when really what's happening is that delay is is consuming buffer that you have built into the schedule, which is an impact, right? So the way that it worked with the government was the government was delayed in reviewing their documents. When you initially look at it, it looks like there's really no impact, but the impact was they were taking buffer out of the schedule right. that I built in for myself, <laughs> right? So that's something I want consideration for because the government will get amnesia down the road. <laughs> you got to document it. Right. Later on, when, when I'm running late on one of my tasks, you're like, gonna, I lost three weeks because of you. Right. And they're like, 
I didn't notice. There was no impact to the schedule at the time. (laughs) So that's why for me, when you, when you switch over to more of a finish to start um, approach, the it's easier to see those delays and it just pushes, I call it good schedule push. It pushes everything out of the schedule. There's a couple other notes that I can make on this too. One is the DCMA has an audit that they, that they have for project schedules. It's a 14 point inspection. Mm -hmm. And one of those points is what percentage of finish to start relationships do you have within your project? And what they're looking for is over 90% because, because of the same exact reasons, the more complex the schedule is, the harder it's going to be to point out where the, where the issues are. And I bet you can find that checklist on the, on their website somewhere. Yeah, it's, it's pretty easy. It's pretty common. There's a lot of tools out there as well that, that will run that inspection for you on your schedule, but it's to avoid exactly that. For me though, it's also the real importance of all this stuff. And a lot of the project management tools is the ability to communicate it. So when you've got a very overly complex project schedule, it's, I stare at 12 hours a day so I can see what's going on with it. But when I've got 30 seconds to explain it to some other stakeholder who doesn't have that kind of time, it becomes very difficult. The more simple you can keep the schedule, the easier it is to communicate that to all of your stakeholders, even when you only have a couple of seconds or a couple of minutes to explain to them what's going on. I I totally agree with that. I've been in some executive level briefings where the the big wig doesn't really know the details of what's going on, but there's right. a problem. And they come in with one of these spaghetti right. charts trying to explain where everything's going wrong. So, I mean, to answer your original specific question of why you wouldn't want to use some of the finish to finish and start to start and some of the other types of, of approaches, it keeps you within the DCMA audit, which is always a <laughs> right. good thing. It's easier to communicate and it's easier to, to manage as well, to be able to point those, those scheduled delays out um, clearly and quickly. I know when I was in the government, I looked at the master schedule for everything, but I can't say that I ever really understood it. And I definitely didn't understand how a small change in one piece can drive major changes in, in other parts of the schedule. And I think that's the, the big takeaway is for the contracting officers who are listening, or maybe people who aren't as familiar with scheduling in the, in the project management side of the house, go have that conversation with your project manager or your master scheduler. And there's not necessarily a right or wrong way to do this. The only right way is to make sure that the schedule is very clear and can be communicated very quickly to stakeholders like yourself or other people who aren't staring at it 12 hours a day so that they understand what's happening. If the project manager can't explain it in a way that the contracts people can understand it. That's a problem. That's a problem. (laughs) Let's talk about subcontractors now. That's a topic we don't cover enough on the podcast. When you're in industry, managing subcontractors is the same kind of role as on the government side, managing your, your prime contract. Right. right. If you're a contracting officer and you're going out to buy something, you're sourcing and they're your vendors that your, your, the primes are your vendors. When you are on the industry side, if you're dealing with subcontractors, you're sourcing, you're finding vendors and then you have to manage them. So I think that's one of the reasons why I like the, podcast so much is just, I see how much overlap there is between what you and Kevin are always talking about and the things that I have to deal with on a day-to-day basis as a project manager, um, particularly in that sort of tier one um, contractor role. So tier one being those contractors that work directly for the government. Right. So in those cases, the government, you'll have one cost or you'll have one contractor. That's me. But in that role for me, I may have a dozen subcontractors <laughs> right. that I'm trying to manage and go through the same process that you and Kevin are always talking about. How do I find 
the right contractors? How do I vet them? How do I put a contractor statement of work in place with them? And then how do I follow up to make sure that they're actually delivering what they're supposed to deliver? So there's a lot of overlap there, I think, between what you and Kevin talk about on the podcast and what I have to deal with as a project manager on a day-to-day basis. So if if I'm managing a complex program that actually has different parts between uh, developing and sustaining and all that, that, that's similar to the role of a project manager where you could be entirely dependent on one sub for the whole thing to come together. And it's something, so to, to translate it into project management terms, it's as I look at my risk register... I see that it's filled with all the subcontractors <laughs> that that I'm dependent on, right? Because the things that need to get done from within my organization, there's usually a lever that I could pull or I could go talk to somebody's boss right. or I, I can I have more influence over getting that work done. As soon as you go outside the boundaries of, of your organization and you're dealing with subs and vendors, that becomes much more challenging. Yeah, you got one small business that goes out of business on you. They right. file bankruptcy and you're, oh no. So there's one particular instance where we had a project and I always seem to need uh, metal benders or metal fabrication shops. And we had we were under contract with the government. We needed a lot of metal work done. We um, identified three different potential vendors. And what I decided to do was to select two of them. We gave both of them all of the drawings and then turned each one on for half of the work. Now, that does not sound efficient. It is not efficient at all. <laughs> and my production manager was mad because now he had twice as much work and right. he had to go follow up with two different vendors. But from a risk perspective, you never know what's going to happen with these vendors. You know, they'll get hit by a comet. The owner will win the lottery and decide he wants to get out <laughs> right. of business. Right. You know, locusts, cats and dogs, whatever the case may be, they they may drop out. And for me in that situation, I wanted to be able to quickly transfer all of the work to the other so that we didn't lose any more schedule because there was very little um, risk tolerance for any more schedule delays. So from an efficiency perspective or from a production perspective, it may not have been the best decision, but stepping back and looking at the overall picture of the project, it was absolutely the, I think the right call. And Ultimately, it all worked out because they both delivered, and so we had but, plenty of time. But you can't do that with every single thing that you need to buy. You can't dual source no. everything. Were you looking at, this is the most critical thing, that if we lose this, there there's not a lot of other choices, or there's some spin-up time, lead, long Absolutely. lead time? I mean, it was, a, it was a lot of metal work that, that we needed to have done in order to deliver to the government. And so there wasn't, um, there wasn't a lot of wiggle room in terms of, well, if one of them completely drops out, we can completely restart the process with another potential vendor. It all had to be ready to go in case of, of anything going wrong. So in that case, it, it turned out okay. And um, what I would always advocate is to always line up additional subcontractors, even if you don't use them. Sometimes when you're trying to find some very specific work to be done, you'll eventually find a vendor and just kind of relax and say, okay, we found our our person. And that's where we're going to get the the goods and services from. What I would say is that you always want to have other eggs in that basket and keep that process going of searching for other vendors because you never know what's going to happen. On the government side, it's, it's fairly easy. You, you post something on fed biz ops and vendors fall out of the sky. Yay. I I can, I can supply this. Well, for, for the most basic commodities for, for some unique kind of things that you want to buy in the government, it's a little harder to, to find vendors sometimes, but the government market is so big. Right. 
it's I think it's more the case of the vendors are finding you and you release requests for information and, and ask people who can do this and you can narrow down amongst it. How do you find subcontractors on the industry side? Is, is that any different? I mean, if if you just post on the web, we need somebody to do this on your on your website. What are the chances of people finding you? No, there, you definitely have to get out there and network. And what I always advocate is go to wherever the vendors that you need are. So, for example, I need uh, metal fabrication shops. Well, there's different metal fabrication meetup groups and and industry groups and things like that that you can become a part of. And trust me, you'll be very welcome there as a potential, <laughs> you know, uh, as They're a all looking customer. For, for, yeah, customers, right. yeah. They're used to talking to each other at these meetings and when you show up. Um, and it doesn't have to be overly formal. It could be as simple as a LinkedIn group. Right. Or um, there's other, just go to wherever those vendors sort of are yeah. and then you can... Um, uh, and then you can find out who the good ones are. And then you network within those communities. to Maybe find Maybe social media has made that a lot easier, not so much traveling and, and whining and dining at all hours of night, trying to, trying to meet all these people. If you, if you have tools like, like a, a LinkedIn group. Yeah. I think that's a good point because especially when you look at, let's say 20 years ago, it was much harder to do business with people who were geographically far away right. um, where that's not the case now. And so if even, even if you have very specialized work that needs to get done, chances are you're going to find somebody else who can do it somewhere else in the world, right? <laughs> I'm getting emails all the time from people in India who are trying to sell me on goods and services because it's not as hard as it used to be to, right. to use those people who are, who are so far away, you know, whether it's in the country or outside of the country, yeah, chances and you're, are you're going to find somebody and else. And you're doing do metal work. If you're doing software right, development, right. right? That that's entirely portable. Right, right. So I, I guess the bottom line is make sure that you don't put all your eggs in one basket and keep that search going until you at least have, let's say, two or three other subcontractors who could potentially pick up the work so you could reduce your risk. Probably the biggest theme of the podcast is communications, open communications between government and industry. Let's talk about your experience with communications, not only between government and industry, but but within the project from the project manager's perspective. Sure. And and I think that's a, a good point. And I think it's appropriate that if this is the project manager viewpoint, that communications is a key theme of it. When you look at the project manager role, some people would argue that the primary purpose of a project manager is to be a good communicator, somebody who can go to customers and tell the story of the project at the 10,000 foot level, but then also dive down in with their technical team and and communicate with them on some very specific technical issue that you may be having on the project. So uh, for me, communications is very important. And I think, you know, when you go to project manager school, it's not one of the first things that they talk no, about. Not it's not one of the sexy project management, you know, Gantt chart and schedule management and cost and budgets and earn value and all these sorts of right. things. Communications is kind of tucked in there later in the, uh, in the learning process. And I think that that that's not accurate because when you become a project manager, it's all about maintaining that communications. And even the things that we've talked about, the project manager tools that you use, we were talking about the example of the schedule earlier. The problem there wasn't that the schedule was technically wrong. The problem was that I wasn't, it wasn't a good communication tool. So a lot of the tools that the project managers use, really they're there. So that way you can communicate to people clearly, the stakeholders, what's going on on the project. So it struck me while you were talking that the program manager's role on the government side, the communication is the same. You know, you talked about being able to communicate to customers so that, that not only can you sell what you're doing, but you can communicate where you are in the process. Right. Right. It's the same for the government project manager. Their customers are different though. Right. You know, your, your customer could be the secretary of defense. Right. 
it's same kind of role. You also have to be, you have to be able to communicate up and down within the team between the project manager and the contracting officer on the government side, very important relationship. I imagine it's the same on the industry side. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, that project manager is is sort of that middle person who can bridge the gap between the senior leaders within your organization. And there's been, been plenty of times where I've had to go and brief, you know, corporate offices right. for what's going on with my project. And that's a different message that you take to them than when you are working with your technical team and they're trying to um, work through some very specific coding problem or hardware problem or you know, there's a there's an interface problem in the drawings that we're trying to resolve. It's a different language that you have to right. use with those two different audiences. And to me, that's one of the most important roles of the project managers to be able to um, have those two conversations, sometimes nearly simultaneously. Right, but tailor the communication style for each of them to, right. to the listener. I do know that as my career has moved towards um, trying to help distressed projects, one of the key things that will take a project off the rails is a lack of communications, <laughs> right? It's not, it's tech, it's typically not a technical issue that causes a project to go off the rails. I mean, unless you're trying to put a person on Mars or right. invent something that's never been invented before, it's usually not a technical problem. It's some other type of people or communication problem. But really what happens is that it's a very general process. You know, gradually communications will start to break down. People will stop answering the phone or talking to each other. And then, um, and then the next thing you know, you've got a project that's two X over budget and, yeah. you know, four months delayed. You don't even everybody's notice mad. that people have stopped communicating. They're starting to speak a little bit different language about what's right. going on. Right. Right. And then next thing you know, they, they don't even know how to communicate with each other because they're so, they've so far diverged from, from where they were last time they were communicating. And I think, so for me as a project manager, and we talk about things that I wish I had known in my career, maybe earlier on than I did before, it's never that I looked at it as communications aren't important, but certainly as I've progressed through my career, I've realized just how important they are and how much it should be stressed. So like I said, when you, when you enter the project management world, communications is a chapter in the book down the, you know, it's later in the book. Um, but really it should be upfront because a lot of times that's, what's going to make or break your project. I, th I think a lot of times within a project, people like to share information, which right. is blah, just barfing it out. Communication requires the context behind that information so that the listener actually gains the same understanding that, that you have of it. If you, you can do tons of charts that throw out numbers, but right. what are you trying to communicate with all these bars and pie charts and, and numbers Schedules look pretty daunting, right? But there's a very, very simple message. And I've seen way too many chart decks that have pictures of the schedule, right. which is pretty useless to most people. What they want to know is what's broken, right. what needs to change, what's the next action, and who has it. So while you were talking, so we go back to give me an example of a breakdown of communications. And let me give you an example, and I'd be willing to bet that it'll resonate with <laughs> okay. you, right? So to your point... Communications is something you need to manage, and we call it communication channels, right? So I'm on a project on the contractor side, and we've set up very specific communication channels. I talk to my counterpart, technical team. I want you to talk to your counterpart. I want you to talk technical language, though. So if one of my engineers starts talking about budget or schedule problems to their counterpart, on the government side, that can go right up the chain very quickly. Oh, yeah. And now I'm doing damage control. <laughs> so it's it's not a matter of completely open communications and everybody should just be saying everything 
you know, that they could think of. It's got to be very controlled. Technical team, when you're talking to your counterparts, I want you to focus on these things and don't get into the schedule and budget part. Let me deal with that with my counterpart. So that way there, it's the appropriate messages yeah. at each level. That's, that's a perfect point, Dave. It's not, it's not about everyone should tell everyone everything because right. chaos results right, very quickly, right. right? It's about understanding the communications channels and making sure the correct context is flowing through those because what you get when the engineers talk in budget right. is a lack of context. Right. And then it, it doesn't take very much. Now you've, you've lost some confidence on your, on the other side yeah. of the house. Right. So if, so for me, I've lost confidence now within my government team and their leadership potentially, and now I'm doing damage control. Um, whereas it may have just been a misunderstanding, you know, that engineer may have thought they heard something in an internal discussion that turned out not to be the case. Yeah. And now I'm trying to, to walk the, the engineers heard that you're, you're chewing up a little bit of the buffer that you laid out. Sure. Yeah. Right. And next thing you know, that the, your government, customer is thinking that you have no buffer or that, that you're behind schedule. Right. So that's happened to me a couple of times. I don't know if that's, <laughs> if you've ever seen Absolutely. that happen. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, Dave, I think we could talk all day about this, but a better plan is to have you back again soon as a guest on the podcast. In the meantime, Dave, how can people get a hold of you if they want to? So the best way would be LinkedIn. Uh, and believe it or not, there are a couple of David Bartlow's out there. So I'm David E. Bartlow. So just go ahead and connect with me, at David E. Bartlow on LinkedIn. All right. Thanks a lot. Hope to have you back soon. Looking forward to it, Paul. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. We really appreciate that Dave took the time to stop by and share his perspective. I hope we can get him back soon to dive deeper into some of these topics. It's important to get perspective from all the roles in the acquisition world if we're going to make contracts better one contract at a time. I'd like to thank everyone who's reached out with their questions, comments, and complaints. Remember, you can send them to me at paul at contractingofficerpodcast.com. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.